There's something special about knowing a chair you're sitting in, a book you're holding, or an object you're touching has been touched by someone else before you. I, my name is Jarrett Huffman, and I am the owner of Y&J Furniture. Jarrett Huffman restores heirloom furniture, and he understands the specialness of touch. There's people that come in that are just you know, very sensitive about some of the stuff that they get. It's very sentimental and it's stuff they've had for their grandparents and sometimes hundreds of years. Jared remembers one piece of furniture with a particularly special story. There was a chair, that um, a rocking chair that the lady's mother was blind and she would always run her finger in the same way. And she put a groove in there. We had to restore the chair because it broke, but she said, don't take that out. And of course, Jared's hands and the hands of all the other woodworkers who touched a piece of furniture leave a memory too. You don't know what you're gonna get, but you get like a chest of drawers in and uh, you'll see it signed by like all the guys who've worked on it over the like hundred years. And then you're putting your name there that you worked on it and you're with these other guys and you see the repairs they did and all that stuff and it's really cool. So that's kind of neat. We always look for signatures and stuff, who worked on it and then you, yeah, a lot of sentimental stuff that comes into it, you know. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're exploring the senses, touch, smell, hearing, taste, and sight. Jared Huffman was recorded in Durham, North Carolina in January 2022 by Virginia Humanities Folklife Director Katie Clune and Julia Gartrell, for the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. In 19th century American cities, the smell of rapid industrial growth was overwhelming. This really worried people because at the time they thought smells actually caused disease. Melanie Keechel is a history professor at Virginia Tech and author of the book Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Melanie, what did American cities in the 1800s actually smell like? Well, American cities smell different in every single place, but most Americans agreed they all smelled bad. You know, New Yorkers were constantly writing about the smell of garbage and the smell of manure, which was really omnipresent um, because horses were their main mode of transportation. In Charleston, uh, South Carolina, a lot of people were complaining about the fact that they were building the city, building the land for the city by filling in marshes with all of the refuse that they could find. And so that's just decomposing and filling the city with many, many foul odors. They were worried about the bad smells that they were complaining about all the time because they believed um, this is a period before germs and microbes and viruses had been discovered. They believed that bad airs could make you sick. Those were the things that caused disease. And one of the best way to know if the air was bad is if it smelled bad. So all of these bad smells had the potential, um, Americans believed in the 19th century, to make them sick. So at the time they thought, hey, if garbage is rotting, if feces is polluting the streets, these are all smells that themselves can make us sick just by ingesting them. Yeah, they did think that. And what did they do? They're always inhaling those things, right? There's manure in every street. One of the first things that people did to try to protect their health is they would avoid the most intense odors. The other thing that people often did was they carried something that would offset that bad smell. So a nosegay, like a, like a boutonniere pinned on um, to your collar, that was not just decorative. It served a purpose. As people were walking past a slaughterhouse or a particularly bad smelling area, they would bury their nose in that flower in order to inhale the good scent and thought that that would protect their health. That's so interesting, right? A nosegay. Yeah. I mean, they did some other things that we would, you know, look sideways at, like smoke a cigar <laughs> because then they their heads would be wreathed in all of that cigar smoke and that's what they were breathing in instead of the bad smell. Um, I, I think we could probably agree that wasn't the best choice. And you're reminding me that, right, there would have been slaughterhouses close by. Everything was sort of mixed in with where people lived. Absolutely. So in the early 19th centuries, as American cities were just starting to expand, 
they didn't have a lot of transportation options. So everything was mixed together. You'd have a neighborhood butcher. You'd also have lots of people in your neighborhood who were keeping cows and chickens and everything in their yards. Um, And as cities got bigger, early efforts that were taken by boards of public health, uh, those were formed right after the Civil War, were efforts to really move and restrict where industries, they called them the offensive trades, meaning they offend the sense of smell, um, trying to restrict those from the built-up centers of cities as a way to protect people's health. Zoning, which is what we know today that creates industrial districts, um, you know, often outside and separate um, from the residential portions of our city, that builds upon um, the early public health regulations that tried to move smelly trades away from the places that people lived. You have a vivid description from a journalist in Chicago of that era. He's on a boat ride because somebody has complained about smells, and they're sailing up the river to get closer and closer to the source of the smell, Well, I don't know if it was an official thing, um, but newspapers called these smelling committees. They were, you know, often put together by governments, a combination of officials, often scientists. There's a chemist at the heart of the, the smelling committee in Chicago. And what they're trying to do is follow their noses. Um, to the source of the stench. So they put the smelling committee together in Chicago in 1862. And this is an account of their last voyage up the Chicago River. As they sailed further up the north branch of the river, the reporters didn't need the chemist's tests in order to tell that smells um, (laughs) were coming from everywhere. And so instead, they started writing about tanneries where men washed huge piles of green hides in the river and a scow laden with slops from Crosby's distilleries, as well as stables filled with cows and hogs, um, because all those smells were demanding their attention and pointed to their local politicians who were also on board and said, the city council have seen and smelt the North Branch. Now, what will they do with it? They're going to move the river. They're going to try, right? Like this is the start of that idea that the river really is the problem. The Chicago River should empty into Lake Michigan, but that would mean it carries all the waste from the stockyards right through the center of the city. So their engineers um, instead reversed the flow of the river. So all of the wastes from the slaughterhouses would go away from the city and the reversal of the Chicago River (laughs) still exists. Like the Chicago River flows out of Lake Michigan now, opposite from the way that it should flow. And this was one of what were called smell panics in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Describe a few of these other smell panics and what had caused them. Yeah. So in New York City, there's a smell panic um, in the late 1870s. It really comes to a head in 1878 oil refining was just getting started and it was producing a new type of smell that New Yorkers hadn't smelled before. It all sounds bad. <laughs> I think it was. the um, They used sulfuric acid, which we know has, smells like rotten eggs, to you know kind of agitate it with the crude oil and draw off all the impurities. And then because they're industries and they want to make money, they looked for ways that they could sell that product. They called it sludge acid because now it's got like all of these impurities in it. And um, fertilizer manufacturers discovered that if they spread sludge acid over rotting carcasses in the sun, it sped up the decomposition process. So it sped up their ability to make fertilizers. So you could just imagine that, like huge yards of dead animals with sludge acid spread over them, (laughs) Um, you know, rotting in the sun and all of the odors that are rising from that. But the other thing that chemists discovered as they were trying to figure out like, well, what is sludge acid and, and why is it creating such a problem is that every time it interacts with water, it releases a new wave of odor. And when these factories, the oil refineries couldn't sell the sludge acid because they had too much of it, they would just dump it in the creek. But the creeks of New York City, of course, are tidal, which means that every time the tide came in or went out, (laughs) it's, you know, reacting with the sludge acid anew. So there's another wave of odor every time the tide changes. That was a big smell panic. (laughs) Were they calling it a smell panic at the time? No, I don't think anyone called it a smell panic at the time, but 
every time I encountered one of these events where, where smells were really out of control, there is a huge uptick, both in, you know, letters to the editor, editorials in local newspapers complaining about the smells. But usually there was also kind of some kind of government response to try to do something. Um, another smell panic I found um, occurred in Cambridge and Somerville, Massachusetts, just across the Charles River from Boston. And one of the reasons that people were so concerned about the smells then is that the smell got so intense that it darkened their houses and turned silver black, tarnished their, like all of the silver on the outside of their houses overnight. And so the people who lived right. there thought the smell was so bad that it became visible. Um, and you know, anytime something transforms, I, I think we pay attention. Um, and so smell something we commonly think of as being invisible, becoming visible in that way, um, definitely alarmed the residents of East Cambridge. <laughs> you also write that in Cambridge, the chemists created kind of smell-and-tell bottles where they would create different substances and be able to go to citizens and say, here's a bottle. Did you smell this one or this one? To try to pinpoint what the smell was that citizens were complaining about. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most kind of incredible innovations. They were trying to prove that a particular slaughterhouse is the problem in a courtroom. But of course, a courtroom requires proof. And smell is a subjective sense. Everyone smells differently. So the lawyers for the slaughterhouse were just trying to say, well, there's no way to say that this is, you know, no, no one knows exactly. Everyone smells things differently. And so this, these kind of smell and tell moments, you know, not show and tell, but smell and tell, I thought were really powerful because what the chemists were doing is they were proving that in fact, people could accurately distinguish between the odors and that they did do that, you know, accurately every time. Um, so it was a way of of putting the, the knowledge that everyone has just from living in their environment, you know, putting it on display in a courtroom. So then you could ask questions about, well, what did you smell on that date? And how do you know where it was coming from? Do you think the idea of smell committees and smell and tells, as they used to call them, exist anywhere today and are smells for our health still relevant? I can tell you that smelling committees do exist today. They're less often the product of official government activity, though some places where there's heavy chemical industry, like near DuPont in Delaware, I've, I've heard local residents tell me that there's an official nose who comes out to investigate whenever you make an odor complaint. But more often, these are efforts that we would think of as being citizen science or environmental activism. So in Pittsburgh, for example, um, there's been a lot of issues with air quality in the history of that city. There's now um, an app that people can download for their smartphones called Smell PGH. And the point of the app is that people can rate the odor and it'll be geotagged to locations in the city. And that, you know, people can then use that data to isolate like when there are air pollution events and so even though we no longer believe that foul odors cause our illnesses, um, we can use our noses in order to identify, right, when there's an increase in pollution over the normal level. Um, there are similar efforts, you know, near all the oil refineries in Houston, Texas, to try to take the things that people know from their daily life and make that knowledge legible in courtrooms so it can be the basis for better regulation. Um, but all those things are ongoing, so we don't know quite how they're going to work out or if they'll work out um, the way people intend. And there have been times in the modern era, at least, when smells that weren't necessarily offensive or stinky or hideous have been dangerous and clued us into a health hazard. Absolutely. Um, when I was working on my book, Charleston, West Virginia, which is the capital of the state, was blanketed in a strange odor of black licorice. I don't like black licorice, so I don't think I would react to that as a good yeah. odor. But, you know, um, yeah. it's it's not an odor I necessarily think of as dangerous. Um, but that was not a usual odor. And so people started complaining to um, local fire departments um, or to, you know, local environmental officials. 
And they actually formed what I call an impromptu smell committee, right? They're trying to figure out what's going on. And they went to um, a coal processing plant where they discovered that the processing plant had a chemical leak. um, And the chemical is what smelled of black licorice. But that chemical leak was really important because it was flowing downhill and into the river, which was the water supply for the entire city. Um, And so the water supply was polluted. And they realized this much sooner than they would have otherwise because local residents noticed this weird odor and complained about it. Um, Of course, that's not to say that weird odors are always, um, you know, signs of dangerous pollution. In other places where you have heavy industry, um, like in northern New Jersey, they do a lot of um, food processing there. Um, They produce odors which are not toxic and not threatening, but definitely will get people's attention. Um, So there were a series of incidents in New York City where people were really worried the city smelled like maple syrup. (laughs) And that, you know, is not the odor that New York City is most often associated with. Um, But no one knew where the odor was coming from. It would come and it would be very strong and it would kind of blanket the city and then it would disappear. Um, People did the same thing that happened in Charleston. Um, You know, they they called the city's hotlines. They they asked questions. They, you know, blogged about it. and then finally, environmental um, environmental officials figured out by by backtracking using the dates and the locations of the smell complaints, and then wind patterns, and figured out that that odor was coming from New Jersey at times when a food processing plant was processing fenugreek. Fenugreek is a very common herb um, in Indian cooking, but most Americans know it because it's the source of the art of the artificial maple flavor in, you know, our fake maple syrups. <laughs> this is fascinating. Melanie Keechel, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Melanie Keechel is a history professor at Virginia Tech and author of the book Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Buried in a folio of a 15th century monk's writing is a poem about the absolutely annoying noise of blacksmiths. Not just the pounding of their hammers, but the gnaw and gnash of their voices. Aidan Lears is a professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University and author of World of Echo, Noise and Knowing in Late Medieval England. She explores the noises of early English voices and how that noise translated to knowledge. Aidan, you start your book with that poem by the monk who is super annoyed by the sound of the blacksmiths at night. That really struck you. I love this poem. This is a poem that is a complaint against the noise of the blacksmiths as they work at night. It is from the perspective of a monk denouncing their noise and describing them in terms of pollution and disfiguration. He's also fascinated by their sounds. And ultimately the poem kind of uses the sounds of the blacksmith's forge to produce its own poetry. Uh, So I like to think of it in terms of the sort of analogy between uh, physical craftsmanship of the blacksmiths and the sort of aural craftsmanship of the poet in a lot of ways. Do you mind reading it? I know it was written in Old English, so maybe read the Old English first and then some of the translation. Sure. It was, it's actually technically Middle English. So I'll read it in Middle English first. Swart a smaked smith, smattered with smoker, drive me to death with den of her dentus, switch noise on nichts, ne heard men never, what knaven a cree and clattering of knockus, the comedy conjons creen after call, call, and blowin' her bellwas, that all her brain breastus, huff, puff, saith that on, half paff, that other, they spitten and sprawlen and spellen many spells, they gnaven and gnashen, they groan us together, and holden him hot with her hard hammers. It's so musical, right? Yeah, and in fact, there's even a section of the poem towards the end that describes how the master smith combines two pieces of metal 
it reads in, in modern English, the master lengthens a little and lessens a littler. So lengthens a little piece of metal and lessens a littler piece of metal, twinning them together to make a third. But the phrase that's used is um, twinneth hem twain and toucheth a treble. Um, so that phrase touching a treble refers to making a piece of metal from the first two, but it also refers to striking up a treble note. So there's some sort of wordplay here around medieval lore, which located the origins of music theory and Pythagoras's chance perception of the blacksmith's hammering. I mean, I read it as this sort of metallic and musical transformation come together and lead into this sort of noise and nonsense syllables of lus, bus, las, das, etc., etc. What drew your attention to this poem for your book, World of Echo? What about the sounds here? Did you want to explain to people? I was just really captured by the kind of tension between what the poem actually says in terms of its dismissal of the noise of these blacksmiths, but then also the apparent joy it seemed to be taking in reproducing the sounds of these blacksmiths. So how were people thinking about noise and the noise from language? in this era. You write that scholars back then created a strong hierarchy of voices and sounds. Yeah. This refers to the hierarchies of vox uh, established by medieval grammarians. These hierarchies were sort of based on the capacity of voice or sound of vox to carry meaning. So the highest type of vox was articulate and writable. And this would be Vox that was associated with great poets like Virgil and Ovid. Then below that, there was articulate but unwritable sounds. And these were uh, sounds like human cries and wails. So these are sounds that are articulate. They mean something. They mean uh, they indicate someone is in pain or in ecstasy or, or something along those lines. But it's not possible to write them down. And then below those, you get inarticulate, writable vox, which were was uh, tended to be animal sounds. And a lot of onomatopoeia, uh, sort of Latin onomatopoeia comes up to characterize those sounds. And below that still was inarticulate, unwritable sounds, which is sort of sounds of frozen grass when it's being crunched or stepped upon or doors creaking, things like that. So what you have is this sort of hierarchy of knowledge and being that privileges Vox in a sense of voice or sound with highest levels of meaning attributed to these sort of authoritative, often Latinate and male thinkers. Isn't it interesting that there was this hierarchy of Vox Back then, it's not something you think of us as having now, right? I mean, we I do believe we still have sort of ways of privileging human communication over non-human communication. And even within human communication, certain forms of communication over others. I teach in college and I'm thinking about the difference between first-generation college students and those who have been well-prepared in high school, for example. Like part of the bigger picture relevance of this book is to sort of reframe how we might approach and listen to those perceived to have less intelligence or without the sort of correct forms of intelligence. It makes me think about uh, an example you give of the obnoxious loudness of the wife of Bath in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Yes. When did Chaucer write? And tell me about the wife of Bath. Chaucer died in 1400 and wrote and revised the Canterbury Tales through the 1380s and 90s. And the wife of Bath is perhaps uh, one of the most memorable characters from the Canterbury Tales, She's a very loud personality, and she calls herself, for example, a very jangleress, a true jangler. This term jangleress comes from a Middle English word, janglin, which means to gossip or to, to sort of talk idly. 
Of course, today it means to make noise. She's situated in interesting ways with respect to sound. So like I said, she calls herself a very jangleress. She's a, a noisemaker, but she's also partially deaf because she was hit so hard by one of her husbands after she tore pages from a book of his that he was reading to her, a book called The Book of Wicked Wives, which he reads to her to try to instruct her on how not to behave. And she becomes, she gets so fed up with him that she tears a page out of the book um, and is rendered partially deaf as a result. And um, so this deafness, earlier generations of scholars read this deafness in terms of a kind of spiritual deafness where she's, she's like not absorbing the spiritual truth of the Bible and these uh, books that her husbands are trying to read her about like good behavior. But I read it in terms of what sound studies calls reduced listening. So she hears the sounds of the words, but not the meaning of the words so much. And she kind and that sort of diffuses the power dynamic. And instead, she sort of has a very playful and and poetic relationship to language. And I think this sort of informs her approach to gender and marital relations in in the way she tells her tale. You know, your book focuses on medieval times, medieval ages, but do you find there are lessons to be had here today about the way we approach language and sound and noises? I'm not sure if I would say lessons, but I do think that there are are ways that this work sort of, ref- I mean, we tend to think of language and noise as opposites, like whatever is not language is noise and noise is sort of emphatically not language. Um, and I think this work sort of asks how it's possible to experience language as noise and asks us to sort of think about what happens when we encounter strange language. So uh, listening to a foreign language that we don't understand or listening to a lecture with a lot of specialized language in it or listening even to poetry, which is which is not entirely sort of straightforward language. It's, it's language that has been made strange in some way. Um, and I, I think this project sort of invites us to think about how this kind of strange language and the listening that goes along to it is a form of communication. Huh, I love that. Aidan Lears, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for inviting me. Aidan Lears is a professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University and author of World of Echo, Noise and Knowing in Late Medieval England. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Most of us know Leonardo da Vinci as a great painter who later became a genius scientist. Francesca Fiorani argues that da Vinci was always both. Painting was his science, and science was essential to his art. Fiorani is a professor of art history at the University of Virginia and author of the new book, The Shadow Drawing, How Science Taught Leonardo How to Paint. Francesca, you argue in your book that Leonardo da Vinci's paintings were a way to explore the philosophy of optics. What is the philosophy of optics? Yes. So what is optics? Optics is uh, uh, was a science to make eyeglasses or painting, but uh, it was also a philosophy that explored how we know the world through the senses how sensory experience actually is what gives us true knowledge of the world. How did that relate to his astounding belief in the power of painting as it related to vision? So painting was the primary way to convey that knowledge of the world for him. What he was really interested in was uh, 
creating emotions in people, in viewers. People who looked at his paintings had to feel a certain way. And in order to do that, he needed to paint figures that conveyed those emotions, those feelings. Optics and the nuances of light and shade allowed him to represent the most uh, delicate, nuanced variations in people's expressions, people's gestures, people's looks. And those minute variations conveyed the, the feeling that people had, but not the feeling, you know, anger, fear, grief, but the very subtle. That's why we admire his smiles. His smiles are those very subtle smiles. Think about the smile of the Mona Lisa, right? a very famous smile. Uh, she does not uh, convey those extreme feelings, but rather a, a sort of very calm, self-possessed uh, feeling of her place in the world. And that's what we admire so much. How did optics help him achieve subtlety? Yeah, so he was a great observer of nature and a great observer of those variations of light and shade. Optics gave him a way to see those variations, to analyze them scientifically, geometrically, and then figure out ways to translate that knowledge into paint. How did he learn optics and then learn to apply them to his paint? Where did he study optics? Uh, this is the most interesting part of him because he, uh, he could not go to university. He was in a legitimate son and because of his birth and because of the laws of the time in the Renaissance, illegitimate sons could not go to university. So higher education, which would have been the place where you would learn about optics, was just not an option for him. So he had to go into a craft, so something that you could learn in a workshop, not in a classroom. And so he was lucky to get into the most forward-looking experimental workshop in Renaissance Florence. And this was the workshop of his master, Andrea del Verrocchio. And there he had access to all sorts of things, including a, a book written by an Arab philosopher from Iraq, which he wrote in Arabic. But it was such an important book that at one point it was translated into Italian into a vernacular language that Leonardo and many other artists could read. So there was a group of artists in Florence who had access to this book, a very complicated book, excruciatingly detailed. But yet he portrayed and described scientifically so many effects of the atmosphere on people, on visions, on nature, that at one point was, wow. Uh, if you read this book, especially if you are an artist, you no longer look at the world the same way you did before. And that's what I said, okay, Leonardo must have read this book. So when you read that, you realized if Leonardo read this book, now he's excitedly putting into his paintings backgrounds of great perspective and distance that he didn't need to put in there, that he was experimenting with. Absolutely, completely, completely. And he was also creating the physical, real physical condition of, of light and shade uh, that would make it possible for him to represent the faces in the foreground. The painting that was for me revelatory of his deep knowledge of this Arab book is Annunciation, a large painting that is now in the Uffizi Museum in Florence. I looked at that, and this is a painting of an angel greeting the Madonna? Yes, exactly. 
this was a really common subject, a foundational uh, story of Christianity when an angel, Gabriel, arrives to the house of the Virgin Mary and tells Mary that she will have a child, a child from God, because, and here are the key words from the Bible, because God will overshadow her. So there is that metaphor of a shadow, which is a shadow of creation. And um, in that painting, Leonardo somehow uh, made this shadow of creation, that divine shadow visible as a physical shadow that the angel projects on the grass. You have said that that shadow is unique in all of Renaissance art. So it's a unique shadow because angels are, are immaterial creatures, so they have no body, uh, so they have no matter, they do not create shadows. And yet Leonardo treated that uh, immaterial body as if it were a physical body within a physical world, and so very much made it part of our world. But then what was really striking was the landscape. The landscape in the background, there is a river, there is a town around the river. Elements of the landscape you find in other landscapes of that period. What you do not find is the thick atmosphere, the thick air of that landscape. That is an element that uh, he clearly read in the Arab philosopher's book, because that philosopher said that the eye, the prince of the senses, is never mistaken. We always perceive right through the eye. If we do not perceive right to the eye, it is because something interferes between the object we are looking at and our eye. And most often than not, that is the atmosphere. That is that it's thick, it's foggy, it clouds vision. And that's the element that blurs edges, that may create confusion, but that's also the element that gives thickness, space, volume, physicality to people and landscapes. And that's what I saw that was completely unique in Leonardo. You were able to actually look at all of this as it plays out through his most famous painting, The Mona Lisa. You've seen the Mona Lisa in person. As a matter of fact, you describe it as in the nude many times. Tell me about how you've come to see it, what that means, and, yes. and what you discovered by looking yes. at it in the nude. So that was probably the most exciting part of my research. The research on Leonardo's paintings and drawings, which I really had to look at up close without protective glasses, flat on a table, not hung on a wall. That was absolutely incredible. That was not easy. It took years and years because those are the most among the most guarded works of art in, in the entire world. There are two aspects to the Mona Lisa that you've described in great depth in your book. And one is his ability to use optics to shape the subtle expression of the eyes and the mouth. Did you see that? Yes, absolutely. First of all, you see no brushwork at all. So he used, he used very little, uh, very small brushes, minuscule touches, and the scope of this uh, uh, almost absent brushwork is precisely to capture those subtle smiles, those subtle uh, blink, blink of the eye, subtle uh, turning of the head, because we sort of almost feel that she's turning around, right? And the same for the landscape, that kind of very uh, blurred landscape, uh, that very soft light. It's the one that then illuminates the face and makes it possible, the capturing of those subtle expressions of, of the Mona Lisa, yeah. So the argument you make is that the scientist that is Leonardo da Vinci used his paintings as experiments to sort of 
show the science. Yes, and so that's perhaps the way that we should think about the Mona Lisa, but also the Virgin and Child with Saint-Anne, which is another large painting also in the Louvre. Um, so we have to think about them as experiments. So not so much as a portrait of a Florentine woman, in a way it is, but for him, it was uh, an, a constant, ongoing, uh, lifelong experiment on how to test the knowledge he had of optics to uh, capture the emotions of people. Why do you think it matters for us to understand Leonardo in your way, rather than as a painter who was brilliant and came to be known as a great scientist later? Because I think it has something to teach us. We think about science and art as completely separated today. And I think it's important for us to remember uh, that uh, uh, the combination of them, the fusion of them, is the source of great innovation. And so if you think of him as a painter who then got interested in science, you still keep the two separate. And if you think instead of a painter that from day one saw his art as a form of philosophy, which for him it meant a form of understanding the world, so a form of science, if you understand that this was his scope from day one, then I think you, you are in a much better position to understand why his art was so unique at that moment. Francesca Fiorani is a professor of art history at the University of Virginia and author of the new book, The Shadow Drawing, How Science Taught Leonardo How to Paint. We can, of course, learn a lot about cultures through their food, and also through their food writing. Kara Keeling and Scott Pollard say that there's a lot more to Winnie the Pooh's honeypot than meets the eye. Pollard is a retired professor, and Keeling is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. Their newest book is Tablelands, Food and Children's Literature. It all started with Where the Wild Things Are for us, the uh, wonderful picture book by Maurice Sendak. But as we began to expand the project, we did Pam Munoz Ryan's Esperanza Rising. It's a lovely book set in the Depression and a girl who immigrates from Mexico to California leaves behind the traditional foods of her childhood and moves into food production. And that was a big turning point in our writing because we began thinking not just about the food that was on the table, but how it got there. And you also have a fascinating chapter where you pair Laura Ingalls Wilder, who did the Little House on the Prairie, Little House in the Big Woods series, and Louise Erdrich, who wrote The Birchbark House, about the Ojibwe tribe of indigenous Americans. Talk a little about how different they are. Yeah, the Ojibwe live in a part of North America that's very close to where the Ingalls family settled. And of course, Laura Ingall Wilder was writing her series in the 1930s through the early 1940s. And Louise Erdrich writes her books as a kind of response to Wilder. She's talking back to Wilder. And she admits freely that she loved Wilder's books growing up too. She didn't love how the Ingalls family was moving into the land that her people um, lived on, but she did love the sausages. She says that in an interview that uh, uh, she loved the way that uh, reading about how they made sausage. And she wanted to do the same sort of thing in her books. So both books are about food production and food consumption and uh, how it comes from the land, but these are cultures that have very different attitudes towards 
living on the land towards land management. The basic difference there is for the Ingalls family, it is how to transform the land and bring basically kind of European food ways and European agricultural ways, plow under what's there and plant wheat and other crops rather than with the Ojibwa who adapted to what was there without radically changing the landscape. They move in order to go to the food sources. So when they are gathering maple for maple, their maple syrup and their maple sugar, they go to the, the forest where the maple trees are. When they are collecting wild rice, um, they go to the lakes and the, and the, and the, the still areas where the, the wild rice grows. What's really interesting, I think, in the Birch Bark House series is it's not this sad series of books in which these people are finding their way west because they're being forced off their land and, and it's, it's sad and it's awful and it's horrible, all of it, which is, it is in many ways. But there are these kind of joyous moments of, of food and of enjoying food. And then food is very different in the book In the Night Kitchen. Tell me about food in the children's book, In the Night Kitchen. Well, that comes out of Maria Sendek's experience as a second-generation kind of Jewish American. He learns to, to love and respect the food of, of, his, of his ancestors, uh, which is why in the Night Kitchen you have all that food. Well, you see in the pictures in the Night Kitchen, right, of all of these foods, flour, sugar, salt, become the, kind of the New York skyline. And they become this kind of fantasy landscape of food. In interviews, he would talk. He talks about his love of food when, in, not only in Brooklyn where he grew up, but also in New York, that food was this magical thing that a- allowed him access to his emotions, delight, joy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, so in the Night Kitchen, it very much is a book where he explores that love of food and how kind of food settles his identity fairly early on as, as this Jewish-American kid. Another series that was new to me in your book is about Rita Williams Garcia's One Crazy Summer. Tell me about One Crazy Summer and the food journey depicted in that series. In part, One Crazy Summer is, is about 1968. It's about a family that has split up. The mother has decided to, to leave her family and go to Oakland, um, where she wants to pursue a life as an artist and a poet. But she does not perform the conventional role as mother. Um, and instead, she tells them to go to the, the local Chinese takeout and get food there, to go to um, the Black Panthers in the 1960s began um, these breakfast programs for, for children um, and done in local community centers and churches. And she would send her daughters to the Black Panthers children's program or, or breakfast program. But so what happens there is, right, is that the girls ultimately have to be independent and learn independence. They go from being in New York, um, in Brooklyn, with, with their father and, and grandmother who is a from-scratch cook and believes in from-scratch cooking, to the mother who doesn't want to to perform the the mother's role and, in fact, has turned the kitchen in her house into an art and poetry studio and doesn't want much cooking to be done in it at all. So it's it's this very kind of interesting book about learning independence. It's such a fascinating take on food and power and childhood and the dynamic between mother and child, and the cultural environment that's influencing both of them. The Black Panthers breakfast program was what kick-started eventually the the free breakfast, free lunch programs that schools offer today. People don't tend to know about the social organization side of of them, the... um, but that's what is front and center in this book. The the children go to the the center and they see the food arrive every morning. They see eggs, they see orange juice, they see the toast that gets made. And then after they they eat together communally with the other children in the neighborhood, 
they have programming that the adults are are interested in giving the kids education. And it's an ideological education, training them to know their rights as citizens and to stand up for themselves. But it all starts in the food where they are brought together each morning. Why look at food in children's books? Why does it matter that these are stories geared toward kids? Food is everywhere in literature. You know, if if you begin with the Odyssey, the Odyssey is a book that's basically about Odysseus returning home, going from feast to feast to feast to feast. That, you know, for the history of of humankind, (laughs) writers have used food as a way of understanding culture, of creating narratives, of kind of plotting people's lives. If you read any essays on food and children's literature, writers are almost guaranteed to quote uh, Briat Severin, who was an early 19th century writer on food. He wrote The Physiology of Taste. And he has this line that everyone quotes, uh, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. Food is the source of identity. And we begin becoming ourselves in childhood. So we have to, we grow ourselves as we consume our food, that our parents teach us our culture and our specific family ways through the food that they they prepare for us, through the food that they teach us to make for ourselves. Kara Keeling and Scott Pollard, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It was great to talk with you. Thank you for having us. Scott Pollard is a retired professor and Kara Keeling is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. Their newest book is Tablelands, Food and Children's Literature. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.